This is Coder Radio, episode 418, for June 14th, 2021. Hello, friend, and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. This episode is brought to you by a cloud guru. A cloud guru now has the cloud playground, Azure, AWS, and Google's cloud sandboxes on ACG's credit card, not yours. Get certified, get hired, get learning at a cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and helping me sort through this world of technology, it is our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Hello. Hello, handsome. How are you doing over there? I am great. You know, I am luxuriating in my AirPods Max, as usual. Oh, with your spatial audio? <laughs> I'm hearing every angle of you, Chris. Are you actually on the AirPods Max right now? I am, because the the, really? the venerable headphones you sent me years ago have finally crapped out. And how, do they, how does it work for this job, for this particular task? Uh, it... It just sounds like regular headphones. I got to admit, I'm a sucker for the kind of the music gimmicks. I was the guy who got big into DVD audio back in the day when that was. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. It sounded amazing. <sighs> Screw CDs. DVD audio, man. That's right. <laughs> I'm the guy that has a ridiculous amount of gigs of flax of his favorite tracks on his Plex server, and he streams it using Plex amp to his phone so that way he can have high quality audio on the go. So. You know, when any kind of large presence music service starts talking about lossless audio and spatial audio in the case of Apple, I actually perk up a little bit because I got to admit something, man. I can sometimes I'm actually ashamed to say because it's kind of embarrassing, but I can actually get a little teary eyed sometimes when I'm hearing like just gorgeous music, you know, something really sounding good. Like it just gets me right in the damn feels. And so I'm I'm into the music gimmicks as long as it sounds good because I do have I do have a pretty pretty critical ear. I would be one of those things where I feel like I'd buy those AirPod Maxes and be expecting the world and put them on and get kind of disappointed that they weren't as great as I expected. So I've been going through the Apple Music Special Audio playlist. Um, you know, as one does while you're working and coding, right? You listen to music. I have to say it's. It's really a mixed bag. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's not a straight improvement. Go figure, right? See, I'm not enough of an audio guy to really understand why. Like, a lot of the 90s rock stuff that I would be listening to is uh, really just awful. The few that have been spatial audio-fied, right? It's like maybe they had to go back to original masters that just weren't that great or something. I guess, but then if you listen to anything like super new... Like especially like pop, right? It's actually pretty good, right? Anything that's like overproduced, you know, Katy Perry, that kind of thing, you're in good shape. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, I mean, I like it overall, but definitely not like if your green day is not coming out great. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, that's going to be hit and miss is how good is the original audio. It's the, the, the positive is that they have to go back to original source. And so sometimes it just sounds incredible. But the negative can be if what they're going back to isn't that great, you know, garbage in, garbage out. True. Could be the problem. Well, um, while we're talking about kind of expensive things that uh, touch our bods, I am embarrassingly into my launch now. Yep, same. Didn't know if it'd take like this, but here's how I knew I was really liking this new keyboard. So the System76 launch, this is like my week and a half point with it. You know, I think maybe I'm almost at two weeks right now. And um, I actually miss not using it when I'm not in the studio. And when I get back in the studio and start using it again, it's, it's a joy to return to. 
And it's like, oh, look at me. I'm typing fast again. <laughs> and honestly, that's the benchmark as far as I'm concerned. This is the favorite, my favorite right here. My, my, probably my favorite all-time keyboard. Yeah, I, I love it. I have one too. I think we have the same switches, right? Yep. Yep. Non-sponsored. Both you and I paid for our keyboards. <laughs> yes, much to my chagrin. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great, getting free keyboards? But nope, we bought them, and uh, we, you know, we paid for them with our own hard-earned dollars, and we just really like them. And God, it's pretty cool. And so, I uh, here it is. And you know, because I feel like a keyboard like this, you know, your first impressions after a week. That's one thing, but then, you know, going into using it for a couple of weeks and then long term, that's really what's going to matter. So I'll check back in after a few months have passed or maybe just t- from time to time we'll check back in because it's also part of that longevity that's it's going to really matter. Uh, before we go too far into the show, I want to mention that our friends over at a Cloud Guru have a free course on Podman containers this month. Now, Podman is an alternative to Docker that's getting a lot more adoption it's a OCI container standard now, and why not take this time to learn about Podman? It gets a lot of buzz, and it offers a lot of benefits like no daemon required to actually run Podman. So ACG has hands-on with Podman containers on Linux free for the month of June, and in that course, you'll learn what containers are and how to use them, how to manage containers, and specifically how to manage them using Podman, Podman's tools, how it interacts with Kubernetes and Systemd, and how to manage a lot of them in Cockpit, which is a graphical front end, a web-based graphical front end, uh, that which is extremely handy to manage your Podman containers. So we'll have a link in the show notes. The URL is kind of long, but you could also just search for hands-on with Podman containers. And that could be a great way to get started with not just containers in general, but but the up-and-coming kind of like Docker alternative, really. They're pretty nice. So uh, Podman is something I suggest you check out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. But in the meantime, let's get to our emails. Listener Alex wrote in to scare the out of me all over again. He writes, hey, guys, a few episodes ago, I think you and Chris were lamenting all of the existential attacks on the Linux desktop for programmers and power users out there. I know you and Mike can both appreciate a good CLI tool and being able to automate tasks via bash and other scripting methods, even the ability to audit or trust code that you compile yourself. And this is the moment, reading this email, Mike, that I thought, this is the moment he's going to talk about why Linux is great because of bash and scripting, right? Like, I was getting myself all built up for, like, a pro-Linux email. (laughs) I like that he set you up for for a fall. He really did. He says, I, like Mike, really can't be bothered to get into the weeds of my computing devices anymore. Uh, Referencing the busy dad uh, thing from last week. Yeah, yeah. Since I wrote in a while about a while ago about uh, my uh, 2020 MacBook Pro, all decked out with 32 gigs of RAM. Well, it's been a little while, and now I have to say I'm super impressed with how this Intel Mac has performed. Even running Docker, Firefox, Google Hangouts, all of it at the same time, it doesn't really get that warm. I mean, yeah, it gets a little warm, but the fans seem to manage it just fine and don't scream at me. I love the build quality. The keyboard's great now, and uh, the display is fantastic. The disc is screaming fast, etc., etc. And honestly, macOS mostly stays out of the way. It looks nice, and I like how most things are integrated. I spend most of my day in Slack with a browser open, usually on full screen on another monitor. And then Vim open on my main monitor in my terminal in front of me. I use Brew to install the GNU core utilities, which I use all the flags I learned from my Linux day. With GNU user land mostly installed, a terminal, a browser, and a really high-end laptop with an amazing trackpad and keyboard, I really don't see any reason to run Linux on the desktop. I love love the show, and I'm I'm glad to be a supporter, so keep up the amazing work, and let's do another round of robes just to troll Mike. 
Now he's what he's touched on here doesn't he didn't even bring up the M1 performance and the battery life. What he's touched on here, uh, I think, is a core concern that I have had that I kind of started to sort of swallow and put away. But it really does bubble that. And I think what what if I'm being completely honest with you, why it bothers me is I have been on on this quest to get Linux desktop adopted and then just to adopt Linux desktop myself for nearly 20 years. And we are we are so closer than ever with laptop vendors getting on board and all of that, that it just kills me. It kills me deeply from like a personal quest standpoint to see all of this momentum being lost. And I can't really dispute anything that Alex says in this email. No, I mean, as he points out, I obviously agree with him, right? When I read his email, the thing that jumped out to me was the same thing. Like, wow, there really was momentum and definitely seems to have been blunted quite a bit. And I think, you know, I've been guilty of this too, but the M1 is not the answer. It's not the number 42, right? It's not the answer to life, reality, and happiness. Um, Although it is certainly substantial because this has been going on for a bit. So... I'll tell you mine, but where do when do you think desktop Linux kind of fumbled the ball a little bit? I'm not saying it's over, whatever, but for me, it was the Wayland transition. Really? Because I remember I was a more, much more into it back then, and it just seemed like so much energy was going into what was effectively a pissing contest, and I kind of feel like it didn't get anywhere. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe that's my perceptions being like. Whatever. I'm, yeah, it's a. Yeah. It's a. I agree that it's a. It's still. It's still rolling out. It's a very slow. It's a much different transition. You know, when when macOS transitioned to a desktop compositor that uses Metal, they did it in a single release. Linux is literally going to take a decade to transition to Wayland, but it is. It is almost done. I can't really tell you which one's better or worse, honestly. But um, I kind of am of the opinion that it hasn't fully happened yet. Which is why I think I'm still kind of in crisis mode and not morning mode. I think that it's happening right now. I think we are in the, in 2021 and 2020 is this momentum just hit a wall moment where I think a couple of things are coming together. Number one, a lot of us who started using Linux in the 90s and in the early aughts are just getting older and have more complex lives with more priorities. And when those priorities are like other small humans that depend on you, that that kind of stuff just transcends what can give about the computer stuff. It just it transcends any of that kind of thing. And so people's priorities, large groups of people who were the original must adopt Linux crew, I think a lot of their priorities have shifted. And then I think on top of that, you have this onslaught of everyone kind of moving over to mobile. Even even really high-end techie geeks do a lot more today on mobile than they ever did. And absolutely a bunch of average users who can now even just completely askew having a laptop or a computer and do everything on their phone – all of this adoption of using mobile for notes and your information and your pictures – I think it pushes people towards a platform that inherently works better with those devices. You know, it's really nice that if you take a note on your phone as an average user or even just somebody who doesn't want to have to futz with sync thing or, or Nextcloud, it's really nice to take a note on your phone and have that note sync to your desktop. 
And and that times 100 of those little tiny features, I think, has created this natural slide towards these desktops again. And then you combine that with the kind of people's priorities changing and you combine that now with the M1 that comes in and says, oh, also during this horrible chip shortage where you can't even buy a, a freaking GPU for your 10th gen Intel desktop. And in my case, a 7th gen Intel desktop. Like, I can't even, like, do the old PC thing where I could update a few components and at least extend the life. Like, I can't even do that anymore. And Apple comes along with their platform that says, here's the performance. By the way, if you look at the leaks, we're talking 40-core CPUs and just, like, our next iteration. You look at that performance story. You look at that transition. You look at that battery life. And I think those three pillars of of what I define as a wall have come together and Linux desktop momentum is smacking into it. So you, you mentioned the whole like dad aspect of things. Is there some possibility that we are over reading something because of our age relative to like where we were when we were deep, deep into it? And this probably applies more to me. But like, think about it. The people we mostly spend time with, talk to online, you know, look forward to seeing a convention, stuff like that are in. I mean, I can't speak for you, but at least the ones I deal with you know, more regularly are kind of in a similar place as I am, right? Their parents, they're a little older or they're kind of like, you know, they're just not recompiling their desktop environment, right? They're just, <laughs> they're not writing a GNOME extension and they want to change their goddamn background. I think what it might be is a little bit of both. Yes. It's where we're sitting at now. We're seeing, we're seeing it different because of our experiences, but also I think, we are open to another way of seeing a same old problem all of a sudden. Like we're now seeing it with a different perspective and realizing there's more people on this side of the line than it initially seemed. But I will say it really does depend on your perspective because like um, he calls himself ex Apple user, Mike, he wrote in again and he said uh, as a dad of two little ones, the way I look at it, cause he runs a SaaS company during the day. Uh, I don't have the time or energy to have a computer that I can't fix myself, mm. right? He flips it around in his head. He says to me, to me, I don't have time to go down to the damn Apple store that's two hours away and then give them my computer for four days. I need to be able to fix it today. And if they spill something in there or they break something, I got to fix it. What kind of moron would spill things in a $2,000 laptop? <laughs> oh, wait. I mean, I totally agree with him. Like for me, it's, it is, it's like you got to plan the day you're going to go down into into the mall to, to go to the Apple store because it's, it's quite a ways. Um, or like if it's another vendor, I got to mail them the laptop. So he says the power of being able to repair his own machine means that it's not really about hackers and tweaking it and overclocking it and making it totally elite. It's just about not having enough time and energy to depend on these other groups to fix it when you could just fix it yourself quickly if you know what you're doing and you have a couple of spare parts, um, he says, I won't buy a computer. I can't open up and rescue if I need to. I'm going to I'm going to make that as is. He says it's his goal as long as humanly possible, which means the M1 will never sit on his desk despite all its glory. And I think it's just two compromises, because I think what your answer would be if I were to speak for you for a moment is if you couldn't repair that MacBook and it was going to take them five days to repair it. You'd buy another MacBook and either return it once they repaired it, or you would then give the repaired one to a staffer and keep the new MacBook for yourself and problem solved. Well, I've only done that like a million times, right? 
Yeah, so you just have a totally it's a it's a different way of solving problems, and it's one that Apple loves. You're you're a great customer that way. Listen, <laughs> the genius part is really a sales opportunity for them when I'm there. So yeah, yeah, really. Um, but I totally I totally connect with that perspective as well. Um, oh, oof, don't like talking about this topic anymore. I got to be honest. I mean, I want people to keep writing and sharing their thoughts because. As somebody who has to comment on this stuff, this show helps give me different perspective, and I totally appreciate that. So, coder.show slash contact. At the same time, I have a little mini crisis. Jordan writes in with something I can solve. He says, as a fellow RVer, I've been wondering what you're using for internet. I'm using a mobile hotspot um, with a uh, contract I got through the Family Motorhome Association. But since the T-Mobile merger has happened, my speeds have dropped to almost unusable. I wanted to follow up because I have talked about trying to get work grade internet on the road. And I know that's something that some of our listeners are trying to do, you know, trying to do um, some sort of remote work and you want, or maybe now remote learning and you want something really solid. So I thought I'd do um, about a six month follow up to this system that I have gone with. And I'm not saying this is for everybody. I think the system I'm about to tell you is it's for people who like to mess with computers and you want your connection to be very solid industrial grade, you know, like something that could support many family members that could support remote video sessions. That is going to be a little bit of a premium setup. I went with a, a bundle that I'll have linked in the show notes from an online site called mobile must have, and it's their ultimate road warrior bundle. And it's a external antenna with an internal router that has four SIM slots and is crazy fast, crazy fast, way more robust than any MiFi has ever been built. And it has Ethernet ports and it can be DC powered and the antenna is external. It is a really great antenna. It is a Cat 12 cellular antenna with seven different antennas in there. It can do multiple connections, MIMO connections to the tower. So you can have multiple data pipes to towers when they're nearby. And all of it comes together to offer really solid internet. And then you pop a couple of SIM cards or one SIM card, whatever you're comfortable with, into the router. The router is a pet wave. I have the Max Transit Duo, and it's incredible. It's the kind of thing they put in buses and trains to provide internet when going down the tracks. And so it can support, you know, 200, 300 people. I'm used, just using it with my family. And I have in there, I have a Verizon SIM and an AT&T SIM. And then I have a backup Ting SIM and Google Fi SIM. The Ting SIM and the Google Fi SIM are my backup SIMs because they're charged based on usage. Mm, okay. And it works really well. It works very well. It was expensive. It was $1,200 to get it all, you know, done. But it is a bulletproof remote wireless setup. So if you're in a rig, you're going about, you want really solid internet, you want to be able to do video calls. Mike and I have recorded the show over it multiple times um, and it works really solid. It's going to depend on your signal overall, but you can totally do it. So I'll put, I'll put a link to the bundle I got and I'll put a link to a mobile internet resource center article on picking different data plans. Cause man, is that a pain in the ass? That is the worst part. It is really bad out there. Carriers are the worst. And then these 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 third parties that resell the data packages are so fly by night. It's so bad. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah, don't even get me. Oh, I won't. I won't. But I do want to talk about Stripe identity. But first... 
linode.com slash coder. Go there and check out Linode and get $100 in credit for 60 days on a new account and you support the show. We got a note into the show today from somebody who tried Linode compared to AWS, just a $5 Linode too. 100%. This came in just today. They tried out Linode and compared it to their AWS setup and Linode was clearly clearly faster. And Linode's often 30 to 50% cheaper than AWS. They are the world's largest independent cloud provider, and their systems are screaming fast. They have 11 data centers around the world, super fast SSDs on each one of them. Their dedicated CPU rigs have AMD Epic processors that are total screamers. They really dominate. And it's all managed with a very simple cloud dashboard. If you're a, a total noob, and you're really just building something so that way you can deploy and run your application, they're going to get you through that. But if you really know what you're doing, that simple interface doesn't mean it's limited. You get access to the power features. You can deploy your own rig and build it from the ground up, or you can just do the one-click deployment. And that's something I just messed with recently. I was building a quick file transfer box for a uh, um, um, friends of the show, I'll just say, friends of the show who are putting on an online event and we're helping them do some of the management for it. And we're using Linode in the process to, to help with the streaming and to help with the file storage. I spun up a Debian Linode using their one-click Docker deployment. And then the idea is it's Debian 10 with Docker, with the right sources so that we're getting the current versions and tools and all that kind of stuff. I got that deployed and I had the application installed in just minutes and they were up and using it. Actually, not even kidding. It just took longer for my DNS provider to update the DNS than it took me to get the whole stack up and running and the link set off <laughs> to the guys to start using it. That's the magic of using Linode. And I deployed it to their Texas data center because it's nice and centralized. But like I said earlier, you got 11 data centers to choose from. And then one of the things that I do, which is like my little hack for all of our things we have deployed now, whenever I can... I use Linode's S3 object storage as my backend storage. I'll do a, a small economical disk on my Linode, and then anything that's just kind of growing exponentially, like NextCloud or Matrix Storage or this new, this new file repository I set up for them, that I use Linode's S3 compatible object storage. I just put that all on object storage and grow it as I need it and trim it as I need to. Linode provides virtual servers that make it easy and affordable for you to host anything in the cloud. If you're a gamer, a developer, or maybe somebody who just wants to learn, they've got something for you. And you can get $100 and support the show when you go to linode.com slash coder. Boy, Stripe made news with Stripe Identity, a self-serve tool that companies can use to verify customers' and users' identities with Stripe. Stripe manages the data storage in an encrypted format and they say they use computer vision and machine learning to read and match up government IDs with live selfies. And they say for the end user, like the developer that's deploying it, the entire thing can work in as little as 15 seconds. The service is launching this week in beta and in 30 countries eventually. No word on the cost. It will be charged per transaction, but Stripe is not talking about those fees at this moment. What do you think of Stripe Identity? You know, it's it's interesting how efficient it is. Um, although the, I'm not sure I would ever want to, as a user, have this in an app I use. So I did some digging. The third-party developer will get access to the actual images you're sending. So it's not just like Stripe does like a, you know, like they do with the credit card chargers where it's just like an up or down approved. This is, they get it and they get the like the picture of your driver's license or whatever. The, that makes me a little not a fan of that. 
Uh, not a fan of that. No. I guess, well, I guess the alternative would be, um, you know, let's say it's, um, it's, for sake of argument, it's a, it's like a crypto exchange. Because like, I know, you know, when you buy Coinbase, they make you verify your identity and that kind yeah. of stuff. Would you rather that each one of these crypto exchanges rolls their own identity management system? Because they have to get your identity to follow the federal laws. The banking laws, yeah. Um, yeah, see, I, I guess I that's what it is, right? I'd rather Stripe... How can I say this? I, I guess I tr- you're right. I trust Stripe more than I trust random crypto, you know, contractor building some website somewhere. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not ideal. No. What's wild, right, is because Stripe is is sort of their brand is built on protecting the credit card information, like the the developer or the end user of the Stripe API. They never see the credit card info. They don't have to worry about PCI level compliance. Like Stripe manages all of that. And so, like, you can't get the info out of Stripe as a developer. But with this, you can. And it's, um, boy, that just doesn't seem right. And I, I guess Stripe is so they're going to put limitations on what the secret key can get access to. But even then, in that scenario, it's it's dependent on the developer using the API to, to determine how much they store. Like, they they still just decide, well, we won't pull the information even though we could. Like, that's not really much of a fix. Well, right. And, and now it becomes, well, what if the developer's like key got out? Does that mean any user whose ID is in this Stripe system, a malicious attacker could, in theory, just like make the API calls pretending to be the developer and get all their their information? Yeah. I mean, it sounds like possibly. Indeed. But still. Still better than them implementing their own app with some sort of SQL backend that you'd. Absolutely. Yeah. And putting everything in an S3 bucket that's set to public. But again, nothing nothing stops them from using this and then still putting everything in an S3 bucket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and I was seen it argued potentially that due to the compliance issues, like if the feds ever came knocking on, say, like, like this Coinbase alternative, they themselves are supposed to have a copy of the IDs. So it could be some compliance thing there. But I don't know. Maybe we'll see some evolution on this. Stripe does seem to be listening. Like they're in the Hacker News comments, people that are all fired up about this. Uh, from a tech standpoint, though, interesting that they're using computer vision and machine learning to take a selfie. You take a selfie. This is how it works on this app is you take a selfie and then their back end matches it to government IDs based on the metrics that they can pull, the bio, the biometrics that they can pull from, you know, points on your face. From the images. Yeah, that's that's impressive. That's pretty wild. They have a decent demo of it on their website um, that kind of shows you how it works with a with a animation. but. I am impressed by that, and I looked into kind of try to get a sense of what else was happening in this space, and it kind of seems like it's a bit of a crap show. There's several small startups that are trying to offer stuff like this. There's some banks that are promising like pie-in-the-sky blockchain solutions, but they they haven't delivered anything, and then there's a bunch of people rolling their own solutions for ID verification, and it just seems like it was just – this huge market potential that's just been sitting there that Stripe is very obviously well positioned to grab and start offering identity services. There's going to be just even more uses for that online for better or for worse over the years. And one more thing that sure would be nice if Apple let you use Stripe in uh, in your app payment process. <laughs> Maybe you'll you'll have to use you'll have to use Apple payment for the payment processing and then Stripe identity for the identity management part of it. It's just going to be a mess. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I wonder if Apple would allow that at all actually. I know. I know. Yeah, it's 
it, it's it does make you wonder because this is Stripe is uh, this is all they do right. They're wholly focused on these kinds of things where payment in the app store is well the app store is you know what is it like a, a 10 11 billion dollar business it's like a side hustle for apple and it's just not their core focus i suppose with apple pay maybe a bit more but could be underselling it a bit but i just stripe just they're hungry for it i guess i think i i i, I think i actually ultimately like this it's better than all the crap alternatives that's just the pure pragmatism of it is where i come down on it is that I like it better than anything else that's out there right now. And Stripe seems like a company well positioned to pull it off. The user convenience, the user experience of going going through and, and verifying your identity has been such a crappy experience where you're trying to take a horrible picture of your driver's license here in the States or whatever. And there's a reflection on it. And it can't get it quite right. And so you get denied just because of that. And it's extremely frustrating. And they're offering something that everybody knows how to take a selfie. Um, it's built on a brand that people already trust, and they've already got customers like Discord that are actively using it for their verified bot program today. So it's going to be in, it's in beta, and it's by the time you're using their embed code to build this into your project, this is going to be pretty well tested. You know, that might be the ultimate thing about it, is that it's going to be so freaking simple now for developers to use this that it's just going to get adoption. You're just going to drop it in your app, and it's good to go. I mean, even, you know, JB has a Stripe account for like some of our garage sale stuff. It's just Stripe is just so universal now. Oh, yeah. No, we have a Stripe account, too. I mean, I think everybody does at this point. Datadog.com slash Coda Radio. Analyze code level performance across your environment and troubleshoot issues faster with Datadog. What tools are you using now to communicate to your entire team and visualize what's going on with your entire stack? Datadog does it all. And Datadog has this continuous profiler that automatically collects information across your production servers all the time, the entire stack from the metal up. So you can analyze any of your data, take a snapshot in time with minimal overhead and then view it all in these gorgeous, gorgeous dashboard. You get a unified picture of your environment. That right there is game changing. Then using their tools, you can correlate code performance metrics with your other monitoring metrics on your servers and get real time information right there with over 450 integrations with enterprise applications. You can get stats from them pull that in as well. You get this tracing, you get log management, and you get that continuous profiler all in one platform. It enables you to pinpoint the root cause of issues faster than ever and communicate efficiently with your team. So go try out Datadog for free for 14 days by visiting datadog.com slash radio. That's datadog.com slash radio. And for a limited time, if you start a free trial and you create just one dashboard, one beautiful dashboard, you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's right. 14 days, free trial, and one dashboard, you get a free T-shirt. And they're pretty dashboards. So, like, that's a win-win. Datadog.com slash Coda Radio. You go there, try them out, and also, I should toss in there, you support the show. Make it possible for this here humble Coda Radio program to be a free production. Even with all the care and love and time, it's still free thanks to your support. And Datadogs at Datadog.com slash Coda Radio. So a couple of just really basic things that we learned after WWDC. Number one is macOS 12 is getting serious virtualization. Apple has been slow cooking a fork of FreeBSD's Beehive for a while, and now they're adding Vert.io support. Now, Vert.io support means this is a legitimate VM solution that perhaps could tie in hardware devices like eGPUs, physical 
physical disks, network cards that can be allocated to your virtual machines. And uh, the virtualization framework in Mac OS 12 is also getting a DFU mode for dealing with Apple Silicon Macs as guests, importing USB devices directly to the guest system, and a bunch of other stuff. So virtualization in Mac OS 12 is going to be nearly on par with virtualization on a Linux desktop. I think KVM and the Linux desktop still has it built, or still has it beat, I should say, but um, in terms of raw functionality, Mac OS 12 is going to be more on par now. Um, and they may even put it over the top if some great front ends, like you know something from Parallels or VM, VMware gets, gets built on top of that. But as of right now, this is all just framework stuff that isn't necessarily exposed via anything in the Mac OS UI. So it's there, but <laughs> I don't know if you're going to use it. I wouldn't be surprised if Parallels adopts this pretty quickly, right? I mean, this this is a, it's a pretty common use case, uh, virtualizing Windows, virtualizing other systems. I, I virtualize Linux on my iMac. I virtualize Windows. Anything that makes that better, I'm, I'm, I'm down for. Yeah, especially if you can start passing through hardware devices so the VM just sees them directly attached to them. That's nice. And that's the big thing that they're adding. Uh, a couple of other just small things that I just think are noteworthy, and Apple didn't think they were worth touching on during the keynote, but I think a lot of people disagree. That is that some of the new features that they announced just simply don't work on Intel Max. So the process of, if we were wondering how long it would take Apple to kind of slowly abandon the Intel Max in little steps, it begins with Mac OS 12 in a pretty significant way. I guess any kind of real feature that got introduced at WWDC that depends on the neural engine in the A series and M1 series CPUs just isn't happening on the Intel chip. So continuous dictation, on-device Siri dictation, um, some features in their maps program, live text analysis, portrait mode for FaceTime. That stuff doesn't work on the Intel Max. Sorry, your FaceTime calls still look like crap. <laughs> Do you, you know what you see? Like, it seems a little soon, Mike. Seems a little soon, if you ask me. Seems like they could just throw that. That stuff could, I mean, obviously, what do I know? But there's got to be another way to do it on CPU, right? <laughs> it must be. Yeah, but why, why, why invest the effort? Because they're still selling Intel machines, <laughs> you know? Yeah, but they're not going to sell them for long. The people buying the big Intel machines now are buying, are pros, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're and and you know they don't care about a lot of this stuff. So, I suppose you're right. I, I think this makes sense. Yeah. Well, well why invest the effort? Uh, I I just it stinks, you know, because some people have 2020 and 2019 edition you know, MacBooks that just aren't going to get better FaceTime video, or they're not going to get continuous dictation. And so I don't know, it's just it sort of stinks to see it happen already. I'm sure Apple has a solution to that. <laughs> yeah, buy an M1. <laughs> yeah, you buy an M1. I mean, we... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, I suppose that could be it. That could be. Um, I just want to see. This is just an example of something that doesn't happen over here in Linux land. You know, these, of course, we don't have these features to begin with. There's that. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and somebody pointed out on Twitter, it's like, well, what would you have them do? Would you have them just not include these features on the M1 Max because the Intel Max can't do it? Like, they're inheriting this stuff because they've done the la- the, the heavy lifting all the legwork on the iOS side. And now the Mac just gets to take advantage of, advantage of it because it has the APIs and it has the chips, but um, what should they just disable it because the Intel Macs can't do it? That doesn't make sense either, I guess. Yeah. No, but you know what you can have on your Linux desktop. Oh, I do know. Tell me Clippy and visual studio. 
Uh, Visual Studio Code, that is, I think. But Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, Visual Studio Code, now with Clippy, it will show you your mistakes in real time. And, um, I mean, I don't know really, I don't really know how uh, development won't change forever with this. Finally, the guiding hand of Clippy in VS Code. That's great. That's great. So I assume you installed this. Of course. It's amazing. <laughs> I actually, I was reading because I don't know why, actually, I don't actually know what my excuse is, but I was reading their issue tracker for this uh, here app. And I guess it cuts off some of the last like letter of advice that it gives you. So not only is it obnoxious in the way that Clippy always was, but now it also doesn't give you complete advice, which is like salt in the wound and somehow perfect. (laughs) It just mocks you as you're coding, which. (laughs) Yeah. I'm here for, but it, and it takes up an enormous, enormous amount of screen real estate too, as well. Yes, he does. Yes. And, uh, you can tell it was never really a graphic that was designed to be blown up to that size that it takes because it's, it's rough. <laughs> it's, it's like a JPEG from the nineties that just gets blown up onto a high res screen and it just looks real rough. <laughs> it is honestly, I mean, the first issue Issue number one on the VS Code uh, Clippy GitHub is please no. That is (laughs) the entire issue. We should make one that says please yes. Somebody in the audience go over there and encourage encourage this individual because they're making development better. Everybody needs Clippy. You know what the problem here? It's a lack of branding, right? We need to be we need to be dropping machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence assisted development uh, into the description of this thing, and I think people would be on board with this. I, I just think it's just a lack of a lack of help. So I may fork this. Oh, okay. Because there is another helpful uh, spirit that I think the Coder Radio audience would really appreciate in their Visual Studio Code sessions. Someone who will give you advice on your code. Oh yeah. Okay. Sure. Misa here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we need. Yeah. Yeah. And Disney sues me in five, four, three. You know, uh, we haven't mentioned it, but Notepad++ has recently had a big release, and Sublime Text 4 is out as well. Uh, I used to be a Sublime Text user. Weren't you as well? I was. Yeah. Were you tempted at all to, you know, check out an old X after uh, the release, or have you remained firm in your commitment to VS Code? I downloaded it, but I'm so deep into VS Code now that... Yeah. I don't know. And and, and I'm using that damn uh, Pylance plugin from Microsoft that's just yeah. awesome. You're hooked now. So You're, I'm yeah. hooked, yeah. yeah. I thought about it, too. I thought about it. But honestly, VS Code is doing everything I need, and it's free. Well, and the extension library is crazy. Yeah, that, too. That, too. You know, and I was just working on a Docker Compose file, and it's just like, hey, why don't you install the Docker support and stuff? And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, I should do that on this box. And I just – and then everything's all – all my YAML file gets all syntax highlighted all of a sudden, and everything's looking all great, and it's just – God, it's just so it's so quick to just bust through a file, even on a remote server, and then get right back to what I was doing. Um, I would I, I feel like I should give Sublime Text a go because I I find the idea of a development shop or a deve- or a single developer making a full time living by selling a text editor kind of a romantic notion. The idea, right, that somebody could just sort of have this. This independent gig where they work for themselves and their whole thing is they make a text editor. Maybe it's a couple of people. I don't know how I don't know how it works over there. And they make a living by selling a text editor that people pay for. 
like software used to work. Like I find that entire notion romantic, even if it's closed source. So I'm compelled to try it out. And yet I just got too much going on these days. Yeah. I mean, I used to use an editor called chocolate on the Mac. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I remember chocolate. Yep. That hasn't been updated in 4,000 years. I, I sort of feel like VS code just murdered. I mean, I know people will write in yeah. sublime users and I get it. I don't know. Maybe I will try it out. But maybe there's a space for both. Maybe I'm not sure. Oh, there's not. No, there's not. no, <laughs> not really. No, not not yeah. not for not for one person. If that's what you mean, because why why are you going to flip editors all the time? Neil is reminding me, and we also had an email into the show that uh, the Sublime folks have a really nice Git editor now. Yeah, Sublime Merge. Yeah, Sublime Merge. Thank you. That was, we got an email into the show. And they're like, you should have these guys sponsor you because this is some really good software so that's at sublimemerch.com i'll put a link to the show notes in that but um our emailer was loving it you know it's good stuff so i will i'll put a link to that and that is you know what that's definitely something i should check out i've been also debating if i should use github projects or not so if anybody has any experience with that i what the hell's a github project uh, it's like their own trello that you can but you can track the issues back to or you can track projects back to issues and commits which is kind of a neat idea having like, I could see like having an issues conversation around a project entry. I kind of like it, but it also seems like a lot of extra overhead when I just need a list of projects and be able to communicate them with people and bang them out. But kind of like three or four things I'm working on them, like probably should put down and start sharing with people, but I'm just feeling a resistance to Trello. I just don't really, I feel like I've, I've tinkered with Trello as a toy so much more than I actually have as a tool to use. And I'm, uh, Wes is trying to talk me into just making a plain text list. I'm kind of considering doing it. No, yeah, I'm a heavy Trello user, but I'm looking at this GitHub project thing. That's pretty interesting. It is, right? So if anybody has any experiences with it um, or any other newer project management tools that actually are quick to use, easy for other people to adopt, and just get your ideas out and you get going, you don't have to futz around with it, I'd love to know. Coder.show slash contact. Let us know. Uh, I am tempted to try out GitHub projects, but I also feel like maybe it's too much tool for what I need. Fussing about the tools again and not actually doing the work. That doesn't sound like no, me. No, not at all. That's not, no, <laughs> never. We don't do that. <laughs> never. Never, 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 never. Uh, thank you to the QA team out there. Thank you very much. You get the quarterly report. You support the show, which we really appreciate. And, of course, you get the limited ad feed. Nice, tight show with just less ads. We just want to say thank you to our QA team out there. And you can become a member at coderqa.co. You can find Mr. Dominic on Twitter. He's at Dumanoku, and his company is at the Mad Botter Inc. And Mike, is there anything else you want to mention this week? Nope. Just follow me on Twitter and uh, send in your your sublime text love poetry to uh, <laughs> what is it? Coder.show? <laughs> Coder.show slash contact, or I think coder at jupiterbroadcasting.com works too if you just want to do it like old school email style you know you just want to, don't want to have to fuss with the web page you can do that too uh, i'm on the twitters at chris last the podcast network is at jupiter signal and this here podcast is at coder radio show links to what we talked about today are at coder.show slash 418 you'll also find our contact form over there our rss feed our back catalog um i don't know probably dead links it's a website yeah, it's probably over there. <laughs> All of that. Uh, we do the show live on Mondays, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, and it's a lot of fun. We'd love to have you join us over at jblive.tv. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next week.